Today's guest does not shy away from a good challenge, standing strong, especially on the basketball court. From being named National Coach of the Year to being the winningest coach in Princeton women's basketball history, it's no question that her coaching philosophies are unique, inspirational, and strategically effective. Listen to learn about our guest's passion for women coaching women in all phases of life, how her journey and hurdles in this industry look different from others, and why she's determined to make UNC women's basketball a memorable powerhouse. Hi, welcome to this episode of Benched. This is your host, Jules Makia, with our wonderful guest, Courtney Banghart. Thank you, Coach Banghart, for being on the season finale of season two. Oh, I'm honored. This is going to be fun. Let's do it. Yeah, so today um, I have Coach Banghart here to talk about a lot of different stuff. Um, but first and foremost, I think her um, journey to coaching is the most, most interesting. So Coach Banghart, if you want to walk me through your background and how you ended up coaching. Yeah, I will. Um, I got to say, I think the, the, mor- the moral of the story I'll start with, and that is just being open to opportunities. Um, I think, uh, especially in, in higher ed, you sort of try to find something that's going to map your route out. And really, the, your route is really dynamic. Most routes are dynamic. Um, so just staying open. So I was uh, um, a good soccer player coming out of high school. I was a high school American. I had the state record in scoring and all these other accolades. And so I was choosing between a soccer scholarship to... Um, to Boston College and to Notre Dame. And my parents had said, you know, sports are not a vocation. So you should, you're gonna at least look at an Ivy League school. And so I picked Dartmouth at the time because I'm from New Hampshire and I wasn't gonna go anyway, so it didn't really matter. Um, and so I, I went on my soccer visit to Dartmouth and, and really enjoyed it. And the soccer coach at uh, senior fall, the soccer coach calls me and says, it turns out I'm actually taking the Stanford job. So you have two choices. You can go with me to Stanford or you can stay on as Dartmouth's top recruit. To which I said, or I have a third choice, I'm gonna call the basketball coach. And so, um, you know, you fast forward and I ended up being a um, three-year starter and two-year captain and uh, went to two NCAA tournaments and um, had the record in three-point shooting at Dartmouth and playing basketball. Um, And so uh, there I go and I played for four years. I moved down to Washington, D.C. as an athletic director and basketball coach. And I was really gonna move down to be a basketball coach and I, I said to the person who was hiring me, I said, I can't move to coach basketball. Like that's not a, it's not a thing. I majored in neuroscience in college. I figure a woman in the sciences is going to be employable and all that stuff. And so I ended up um, teaching a biology class to freshmen. I created a psychology class for seniors. Um, I was the sophomore class dean, and I was the girls' athletic director. And that sort of sweetened the deal enough for me to do it. Um, and so I did that for three years. Um, after the second year, my Dartmouth coach asked me to come back and want to see if I wanted to become an assistant basketball coach at my alma mater thought about it and really thought, you know what, I really like this athletic directing and being involved in the high school student athlete experience, um, so I'm gonna stay. After my third year, she asked again, and I thought, boy, I, I, think, I, I think I should do it as long as she'll pay for my master's, um, because I, I knew I needed a higher degree if I was gonna either evolve into a college athletic director or a college dean or something else. So I went back to Dartmouth as, a, as an assistant basketball coach and um, in, the same, in the same, so fast forward, I was there for, uh, I think it was four years, if you, and then in that four-year period, I was the uh, assistant coach and also got my master's in creative writing and leadership to go with my neuroscience undergrad. And uh, but the same, at the very same week, um, I turned 29. Um, I got a, found out I was a finalist for The Amazing Race, the, the TV show. I got a call from the Princeton athletic director um, asking if I wanted to interview for the Princeton head coaching job, um, and I defended my graduate thesis. 
Um, and the, really the rest is history. I ended up taking the Princeton job um, and I've never looked back ever since. So a shout out to my parents that coaching is a vocation. It's all I've ever done. <laughs> I just listening to your story, there's so many different questions that come through through my mind. But I think the first one I had was about how you chose between soccer and basketball. Was yeah. basketball, you know, the sport you always loved or how did you end up deciding that you wouldn't go to Stanford and that you would you would stick uh, with Dartmouth and change sports? Yeah, you know, I think it's again, it's a true it's a true story on open to opportunity, but also following your passion. And um, so I was a better soccer player. You know, I'm, I'm I had I, I just that was a sport I had played at a very young age and had had great success. Um, but I was the kid that after soccer games, I would go in my driveway with my shin guards on and I'd shoot hoop. Um, I watched a lot of basketball. I just, basketball had my heart. And really it was one of five people as opposed to on the field and soccer, you have one of 11. Um, and so I knew I'd have the ball more <laughs> that excited me. Um, but when it came down to it, I was really scared if I'm honest um, about giving up soccer. Cause that was a given, uh, a given that I would probably have success in that. Um, but I just, I didn't want to pass up the opportunity to be a college basketball player and, and figured out I'd find a way to be successful. And uh, I've loved the sport forever and, and it's all I've ever done now. And well, I was a tennis pro in high school. Um, that's how I made my money, but how I, how I made money. But uh, basketball is what I've done in my professional life. And <laughs> I can't imagine doing anything else. Well, clearly it worked out for you, but I, I, can't, I can't believe there's like another thing thrown in there that you were a tennis pro. <laughs> but next question I had was off of the amazing race. What the heck happened there? Like, how did you end up I know, right? even thinking about doing that? Like, what was the story behind that? Well, it's pretty awesome. So my brother, who's in corporate finance, he's actually one of the um, global heads of J.P. Morgan out in London. And uh, he was, that was September 11th, um, was his senior year when 01 happened. And so we, he didn't know what the job market was going to look like in finance. Um, and of course, I had no idea that I'd be offered a head coaching job and didn't know for sure if I wanted to kind of go the route of an assistant coach and keep kind of progressing through in that way. And so we sort of just apply and this is back when you, you know, you made a VHS tape and things like that. And so then you get, then it starts with like a phone call and then you have a VHS, you know, just kind of a very long time ago. The process I'm sure is much more streamlined now. So, um, you know, and we, I remember saying to him, what do you think? And he was like, well, I hope I get a job. If I get a job before this show starts, I would probably take the job. <laughs> and so you have a job, you should do it. Um, and so we both were sort of unemployed and I ended up getting a job before the show, and, and um, you know, I don't come from a family that's going to pay for me to, to just do whatever I want, so I have to <laughs> make money, and the rest is history. Yeah, so I wanted to move towards your experience as a student athlete um, and what that was like, and then how it kind of inspired your route to wanting to continue um, pursuing or coaching and being involved in sports and specifically basketball. Yeah, being a student athlete, I think it's just the really it's the it's the greatest opportunity one can be given, and I, I don't take those take those words lightly. I think one reason for that is that the amount of courage it takes to be a student athlete is really underrepresented, right? What you see is is the fun and passion and, and circumstance of of collegiate athletics that's on display every day. What you don't see is is the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs, the challenges, um, the just the courage it shows to get back up and to um, and just to evolve and to commit to your process of growth. And that's just really hard, right? And uh, I just, I, I really found a, a confidence. I really, um, I of course, enjoyed the passion of playing my sport, but um, I just thought the student athlete experience is so transformational. And if I had an opportunity to be the, be the one that was helping somebody else have that transformational experience, I'm all in. Um, 
And so as much as I love the game days that are, that are what we get celebrated or chastised for, um, I really am I'm, I'm empowered by the, by the courage that my student athletes show on a day-to-day basis and how much they're willing to, to risk and how much they're willing to work uh, to get their goals. Yeah, no, I think it's even more on display now with COVID of like, or not even on display, but what goes on behind the scenes. I think you're so right. Like the courage behind it, all of us have given up so much and have done so much to sacrifice and make sure that we can play our sport and keep our teammates and coaches and training staffs staff safe. And going into my senior year, losing my junior season where I was just like on the cusp of really getting to where I wanted to be. And then um, this fall, I ended up having mono. Oh no. <laughs> and so now I have to come back from that. And so I definitely get, you know, what you're saying about like all the sacrifices that student athletes make. And I think it's even more interesting, you know, during COVID. And that's like kind of the next question I wanted to ask was, how do you keep your team motivated? And how do you, the other thing is, how do you keep college people like wrangled it's so hard it is like I know we're we have such a large team it has been a challenge to really like be like okay everyone like we we can't do the things everyone else can do now that they're back at school and away from their families like we have to keep that bubble Mm -hmm. how have you been able to do such a great job and keep everybody motivated you know I think we, we talk a little bit about we have so much to risk and so much to gain Right, so athlete, the athlete population, um, it's very much in their best interest to, to shed their inevitably, you know, we're just, we have this inevitability to our life and instead take on that you have a lot to lose. If you get the virus yourself, then you're out for basically three weeks at least. Um, if, you, if, you get the, if, you, if you get the virus from contact tracing, you're actually out um, as well for two weeks. So we have a lot to lose. You also have a lot to gain by staying healthy. So I think that we, we talk about that almost daily, about how important it is to make decisions that are going to not only help your career, but help our team. Um, that's been, and then in terms of just, yeah, what a, what a hard time for everybody in terms of both the social unrest and, and really the, the political change, as well as the, um, you know, the COVID separating us in a way and, and, and sort of magnifying some issues that we've had for a long time in our country. It's, um, we, we sort of chose to, to, to meet it with, in the moment with, um, gratitude, right? Gratitude for where our position, what our position is at this time. And we've actually donated our season to causes that are important to us. So we donate each week, it's called educate and activate. And we educate, uh, we pick a topic, uh, I'm sorry, a population that either needs to be represented or needs service or both. Um, whether it's Alzheimer's awareness or uh, childhood cancer or homelessness or mental health or, um, LGBTQ. I mean, all of the different, uh, all the different areas that need Black Lives Matter, that, that need a, um, an added voice. And there's always a portion of education. So our players picked a topic or picked a population that was meaningful to them, gun violence, awareness, et cetera. Domestic, um, th- this week is actually front appreciation for our frontline workers. So we'll deliver donuts and things. And so, yeah, so the current, the student, the one that the, the player that picked that topic will educate our team, both on the national issue and the, and the regional issue. So literacy, for example. And then there's always a service component. So like we read books to the local schools over Zoom. We made blankets for the homeless shelter in town. We, um, we had walkie-talkie parties with the people in pediatric cancer. They were in their rooms. Our kids were outside because of obviously COVID. So we're trying to meet difficult with you have two choices. It can, it can really, it can fold you or it can inspire you. Um, and that's just a key to life, just like a loss. It can either fold you if you lose a game or it can inspire you to go grow better. And so the connectivity of, of a sport, sport lessons are so connected to real life. Um, and we're just keeping in that theme. Yeah, I love that. I think that's something like a lot of teams right now could really adopt. 
I'm honestly going to bring that. We have a task force on our team, um, and we've been trying to address and educate our team about you know social unrest and um, racism in the United States, especially being on a predominantly white team. It's like very important for all of us to do what we can to educate ourselves and to be good allies. Exactly, and that, totally. I love that idea. I think, and and then it also gives you that sense of purpose, which I think is so important right now. Um, and I also really loved like what you said about you have so much, you have so much to lose, but even more to gain. We had a team sit down the other day, you know, starting our season. We're like, all right. We don't have a positive test yet, but here's what can happen. And one of my teammates, she said it really well. She's like, if you don't care about getting it, just remember, one, you could literally ruin somebody's season because if they get in, they're out two weeks, and then they've got to go through the heart stuff and then the progression to get back in. And sometimes, you know, people get so used to just thinking about themselves, but when you're on a team, you have to think about it's not just about you. Every single decision right now can impact everyone on your team, which absolutely can be quite stressful <laughs> at times. But yeah, that's also, but that's the microcosm of life, right? Exactly. So I would hope after the season, when we don't have as much to risk or gain, if their behavior changes, then they're not good citizens, right? And so there's the connectivity that um, we have more to risk and gain because it's on display when really we all have a lot to risk and gain. And so your behavior shouldn't change once we no longer have a season because then you're now impacting society, not just your team. So I just really can connect the, I try hard to connect uh, the student athlete experience with their life experience because that's, they're gonna be live a lot longer in life than they are as a student athlete. Yeah, it also sounds like you're a coach that really invests in your student athletes, athletes and sees them more as, you know, long-term, like you wanna, make an impact on their life. And I think that kind of reminds me of the leadership program that you started at Princeton. Um, and it was for all student athletes. Yeah. If I remember you told me correctly. Yeah. So when I, well, there's a handful of kids that I, I would really give them the credit because I thought about how much they allowed me to push them and how much they changed because of it academically, athletically, and socially. Um, and it's only because they trusted me and because I knew them and I invested in them that their journey was so enhanced. Right. And so I just felt bad for the regular students at Princeton who didn't have a coach in their corner helping them work through what should I major in, major insecurity, right? Or um, the fatigue that comes from figuring out how to better use your hours or the, you know, the, again, all the, the sport things that make sense, right? And if they didn't, if my players didn't have me or any coach in their corner kind of helping guide them through the process in that way, their growth curve wouldn't be as high. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to help the general students here at Princeton if they come and support us. So athletes were certainly a part of it, but it was actually geared towards the regular student population. And so I ran this two-part workshop, and um, the first was in the first semester, the second was in the second semester. Um, and it was basically about um, finding your purpose, finding your zone of genius, right? And it was geared towards um, helping people think through not the external, what people might think or what your parents majored in or all that, or you know your time management, but really taking a, a really an in-depth look into your life and your passion and your journey and, and what your network looks like. You know, who are the people you're hanging out with? Is that good or bad? Who are the people you're not hanging out with? Is that good or bad? Um, what does your daily routine look like and, and what's missing? And, um, and it was, I mean, I walked in that room and of course my team was in the front row as I'd expect, but there was like 200 people there. I was absolutely overwhelmed. Um, and then of course it caught fire again for the second semester. And um, I still have the presentation. I'm so grateful I did it. It took a lot of time, but um, to, by the numbers of people that showed up and, and, and by the response I got, I was certainly, certainly glad to provide you know, a coach reaching back into the classroom, which I think is, is it was when a, a, true, the, the, a true university is working well. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think like, it's really interesting. I took a class um, last semester and it talked about it really deeply about how important it is, you know, when you're talking about athletics and really that athletes get that academic experience and having a coach like yourself that really balances that and makes sure that that's a priority and that you're getting that degree. And when you leave Carolina and you're no longer an athlete, that you've you know, you have this degree, you know what you want to do and Or you don't, remember? Yeah, that's you don't true. Remember? Or you don't, right? You're just open to possibilities. I I agree with that. I uh <laughs> I was talking to a group of women uh the other day for the Forever Tar Heels event. I don't know if you're gonna be going to that, but um and they all ended up in these amazing careers and they worked their butts off, but they say they're like, Yep, didn't know what I wanted to do. Just kind of, you know, worked my way and then fell into it and um, I mean, I think you're totally right. I came into Carolina. I've always been someone who's like, you know, I, I know what I want to do. Um, and now I'm doing the complete opposite. I came to college. I thought I wanted to do international security and like intelligence law and all this stuff. And then um, ended up loving an internship I took at Wasserman one summer and then realized that I'm really passionate about women's athletics and that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I think you're totally right. Like, opportunities sometimes roll through your door and if you seize them they might end up you know being the best that they can be or changing your life literally so um I think that's really interesting that you say that I also wanted to ask like too about some of your like coaching philosophies and um I I think somebody told me that how like you have specific coaching philosophies you follow and like things that you do I would love for you to like talk through some of those you know, I think the, the biggest thing for me when I coach is that I'm, we're constantly being evaluated as a whole, right? Does your team win or lose, you know, et cetera. And um, I just think if you're, if you're not careful, then you lose the parts in the whole, right? And that's a little bit what happens in the apathy in our, in our, in our society politically, right? We're sort of like, well, if I'm not the president, I don't, I don't really have a say in politics, right? It's sort of, so I really always say, do not let the parts get lost in the whole. So I really create an individual learning experience and journey for all 12 of my athletes. And ultimately, every day we're focused on collective team. But that doesn't mean that, the, that for that two hours of practice or three hours, I'm sorry, or an hour and a half, however long we're going, that's on team. But the film work and the conversations, I'm having a lot of them individually with the kids so that their journey is, everyone's growth curve's different. And all that matters is, is that it's upward. Um, so that's kind of one philosophy. I think also I, I just... I think people you trust people who are honest with you. I think there are a lot of coaches that are um, that would that would be better served being willing and, and comfortable having hard conversations, because I always say if you have an awkward conversation, that means it's not over yet. So don't let that don't let it don't let it linger. If someone if I have an awkward conversation, and and a kid starts to walk out because we're kind of done, I'll say come back in. We're not done yet. Obviously, it's, we're still kind of having an awkward moment. Um, I think any relationship of is built on is built on trust, which is only created through honesty. And so sometimes I my players will say, don't ask coach unless you really want to know because she's going to tell you exactly how she feels. But I think similarly, I ask them the same thing. Don't don't tell me something I don't that that doesn't help. Tell me the truth. Um, and so I think those are two pillars: not letting the parts get lost in the hole, and and understanding that that a trusting relationship revolves around honesty. And, and that means there's going to be a lot of hard conversations, and that actually makes them less hard if you just are willing to have them. Yeah. Interesting question here, but um, 
do you take any like coaching philosophies home as a mother or vice versa? <laughs> like how does that yeah. how does that mix in being a parent and uh, how you take it either home or from home to the yeah. court? Everyone asked me that when I was became a parent, are you a better coach now or worse? And I said I'm probably more efficient because I have less time. But <laughs> um, you know, I have to say my kids are only I have two five year olds. I'm sorry, two six year olds and a four year old. Um, and I, they just melt me and I have such a responsibility. I feel such a sense of responsibility, um, to ensure that they're good human beings and that they are learning to do their best and to be kind and be grateful. It's our little family cheer. Um, that it's kind of how I coach my team, right? I have such high hopes for them because I adore them and they like melt me that I, um, that I just want them to always be thinking about being kind, being great, being grateful and doing their best. And so if you think about even that, the service initiative this year or being kind is being honest with someone because you're not wasting their time, right? And doing their best. I'm constantly letting, not letting the parts get lost in the hole. I think they're, yeah, I think I, I say it differently as a, as a mom than I do as a coach. Um, it sounds like the same idea. It sounds like the same idea. Yeah, I guess yeah. So. I'm pretty, I'm, the New Hampshire kid's pretty consistent. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of that too, I wanted to know how has it been like trying to balance your personal life with all these additional stressors of COVID? Um, and like adapting to the bubble, how, yeah. I know that's like so difficult. I know all of us have adjusted our lives and, um, yeah. my parents are actually both in medicine, so I can't see them. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's brutal. So how, how's it like for you guys? You know, I would say, I would say this all the time to anyone who asks my, my staff and my team always laugh at me because they're like, Oh, here's, you know, I always say it either marry well or don't get married. Honestly, we, are, we come into the world alone and we leave alone, right? Naturally, that's a natural progression. So like there's no reason to couple up unless it's gonna be good, right? Because it is really hard to be a parent and a professional. And I got a lot of questions when I first started having a, a family and kids from young coaches in the business asking, you know, I really wanna have a family, but I don't think I can in coaching. I don't know if my head coach is gonna be supportive and blah, blah, blah. And I always said, in life, you gotta find out what's really important to you and everything else is a detail, everything, right? And so. For me, being a parent was really important. And so whether I was in finance or whether I was in coaching or whether I was a teacher or no matter what, it would be hard to be both things because they're both my career and my, my children are gonna be a very high level of priority. And so um, you can either raise your bar or you can give up and I'm not. And so it's just, I sleep less probably than I should. I worry more um, than I need to. Um, but yeah, I, I would say it's, it's I, I, I co-parent, which is very helpful. It's much easier to do it that way. Um, and then I'm also in my zone of, of passion. So I don't feel when I go to work that I'm missing out on my children. I feel like I'm, I'm leading a, a different passion in that moment. So it's another reason I say open to possibilities because your job is way less of a priority than your family. I can tell you that as you start to get older, they're, they're both important. Yeah, no, I, I love the way you put that. And um, I wanted to know too, um, talking about, I know you've referred to Princeton after, you know, you turned 29, you got this job and it was like a dream job. Mm -hmm. How did you end up leaving Princeton oh. and what made you decide on UNC and, and what was it like? Yeah, it was the worst. I mean, it's really hard. <laughs> it was the worst. I mean, I think, so I was at Princeton for 12 years. We really built that program into a complete national powerhouse. It was ranked higher than, than North Carolina, probably all of the last five years nationally. I mean, it was just, we were rolling. Um, but I think what it came down to is I knew there was going to be a different chapter in my life. I knew that I wasn't going to just coach at Princeton for 30 years. Um, and then so many other jobs just weren't good enough. 
they just weren't whether it was a Vanderbilt or a USC or a, they just there was something in it that I was like it's just not the one right um, and I have too good of a job and I'm not going to take a job to then hope to get another one I'm going to take a job that I want that if I'm stuck in for the next 10 years I'm going to be happy like I'm not I'm not doing because then you do that and then you end up not getting the one you wanted and now you're at a place you don't want to be at because you wanted a job you weren't you didn't get anyway this, that doesn't make any sense to me although a lot of people do it so I um North Carolina crossed off every box for a lot of reasons. It's a national brand. It's an international brand. It's an academic, uh, very respectable, high-level academic institution where the network of, that my kids are going to be surrounded by, meaning my players, is going to enhance their life. Um, it's a community. You know, people care about athletics here, women athletics here, and they care about their coaches in a way that's meaningful. Um, you have a chance to win a national championship. It's a very desirable place to live. Um, you know, it's the ACC, which I think is the best basketball conference in the country. Um, you know, the only downside people would say is, is that, you know, gosh, there's a lot of pressure with that job. And I said, no one will ever put more pressure on myself than I do. So I'm, that, that'll never be a deterrent for me. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, and I really liked Bubba. I didn't know him, but I had obviously a lot of conversations with him. I was, I was trying to make the decision and, um, you know, it, I haven't looked back. This is, it was telling the Princeton student athletes that I was leaving is the, probably the worst day I've had in my life, which shows you how good my life has been. But, um, it was awful. It was really, really hard because I had, they had trusted me and they had chosen Princeton because in large part because of me. And I chose them over other people. So I felt like I had, I was an important part of their journey. And then I was just leaving. It was awful. It was totally, totally awful. You know, really Carolina wrapped their arms around me and it's, you know, leaving is hard and it's better. Than, if leaving's easy, you stay too long. So I left at just the right time. Yeah. Um, what was it like coming to UNC, like, did you struggle with anything? Was it hard to win the team over or was it like a, a welcome? Was everyone ready for like a new wave? Like, how did that go? Yeah, I mean, there was a reason the job was open, right? It wasn't a totally high functioning operation. So there were a lot of changes that had to be made. Um, I always categorize that first year as patience and persistence, right? I couldn't change everything or you'd lose them. Um, I had to be really patient about some things that I don't have to be as patient about in year two. But I had to be really persistent about certain things that I knew were going to be um, building blocks. Um, you know, for the first three months, because my kids were finishing their school year, I was living in a, in a hotel in town. Um, that's not awesome for three months. Um, and really, I had a lot of, of roster things I had to do. So, um, you know, it's where I, I also, so it was patience and persistence. And my other um, kind of mantra that year was, we can do hard things. Um, we as human beings can do hard things. It was a really hard year and I just kept putting one foot in front of the other, um, leaned on the people that, that I have in my network to support me um, and to be truth tellers and to, and to push me. And I was willing to ask for help, like not from, from some of my closest friends. I was willing to open up and say, this is really hard. Um, and I think sometimes if, you, if you're real with people or all the time, it gets back to you well. So here I was in this great, quote, dream job and I, you know, what else could a girl want? And I was just like, this is hard um, to the people that... Um, needed to help me through it. Yeah, well, I think too, like what you were saying about courage earlier relating to stu student athletes, I think it goes further than just student athletes. I think it's their coaching, their training staff, you know, everyone involved at like being a part of a sport and the hours and the dedication that go along with it. You know, it's not a nine to five job. No, that no, it's, a, <laughs> it's the opposite. Student athletes need to remember that too, that your coaches love you so much and they when you're not playing or you're not playing well or you're injured or you're sad, we're sad and injured and all that right with you. So you're wearing heavily the emotions of so many people. It's not like we just come to work and go home. It's like we carry it, you know. So it's a very special relationship that's that's hard at times. Yeah, no, I I I love my coaches to death. I I actually lost my grandmother in 
the like last couple days of September and I remember my coach, you know, I was like, I got to leave. I got to get on an airplane. So when I get back, I got to quarantine. I think she texted me when I left, when I got there, you know, and like made sure I was okay and asked how I was doing. And I remember like at one point just crying, reading her message. Like Emily made such an effort to check on me because she knew all the stuff that had gone down and she wanted to make sure that, you know, me and my family were okay. And that type of like coach is, you know, it just, what she's done for me and for all my teammates, like that meant the world to me. And it's just like, it takes a lot of courage. Like you said, I wanted to next, like, really talk about specifically like the representation of women in women's sports. You know, as we know, women, it's not very common that women are coaching men's sports. And if they are, you know, it makes national news because it's so um, uncommon. But even within women's sports, there's not an overwhelming amount of women coaching women's sports. So I wanted to know, like, um, was that a deterrent? becoming a coach or you know did that Mm -hmm. only drive you to want to become a coach yeah you know I actually my sophomore so at Dartmouth you have a quarter the quarter system so you you have to be on campus your sophomore summer so you take off a different quarter so I had to take off the spring because basketball is fall and winter and so what I did that's my sophomore spring I'm not really employable yet I've done anything right is I um, coached the varsity boys tennis team at my high school my brother was actually on the team and so I have coached boys, um, uh, although albeit in, a, in, in tennis and not basketball. Um, and, you know, I, I don't per, right now. I don't have any interest in coaching men. That, will that change? I don't know. But, um, you know, this is where I want to be right now. But, um, you know, it's hard to get into – it's hard to break, this, break glass, right, on your own. You need people who are going to pull you through. And there's been a lot of men in the last 15 years that have, that have opened the door for women. Right, whether it's Greg Popovich from um, San Antonio Spurs hiring Becky Hammond, and that kind of allowed other coaches to feel the power to do that. So, you know, we haven't been able to do this as just a just a just women. We've had to we've had to rely on on really good men to 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 open the door, and then we've had to work even harder to make sure that when they open the door, we make good on it, right? Because we don't have as many of a sample size. You know, as, as men fail, that's okay because we only talk about the success stories. When there's not as many women in those roles, you can't fail. You just can't. Whatever that role is, right? Um, so. We've had the right women also blazing the trail as well. Um, there's not a lot of women in, in upper upper level um, professional sports on the men's side um, in terms of general management and all of that. Um, there's not a lot of women. There hasn't been typically a lot of women in Power 5 athletic director positions. So, again, hiring people that don't look like you is sometimes really difficult. So, um, you know, I think it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a constant process um, of both education and activation, sort of like what we're doing for our service project. And, you know, um, I didn't hire any men at Princeton when I was the coach. I only had a staff size of one, two, three total um, people. And so I felt like part of my job at the mid-major level was to develop young women and then to let them go then be um, assistants in, uh, at other levels. Um, and then I got to the, when I got this job, my staff size is more like 12. Um, and I think having 12 women is, is actually not representative of our population. So hiring men, now it changes. It's not that, I've, not that it's a higher level so I need men. It's that I have more people to hire. And I think, again, having diversity of thought and experience is important. So I have hired some men, and they've been really great. And I've asked them to be their unique selves in our process. Um, So, you know, women have to hire people that don't look like them as well, and so do men. And the more that we do that, it's the famous Warren Buffett quote, right? People asked him how he had been so successful in in, in his professional life. And he said, well, I was only competing with half the population. 
you know, obviously denoting that women weren't really given the right to be in those upper level um, financial power positions. So, you know, we just got to keep chipping away. But I don't have any bad feelings about it. I just I want to inspire by, by making choices that hiring people that don't look like me. And if you look at the makeup of my staff, I've, I've very much done that. I, I love that, you know, your answer is what you've actually done and how you've made an impact on the sport and um, giving opportunities to the next generation. I think that's so important. Um, do you think more could be done? Like, do you have any ideas of things that the NCAA or Power Five conferences could do to try to, you know, get more women and more people of color and um, just like more diversity? You know, it's really dominated by men um, into power positions, into coaching, into you know, just working in athletic departments. Mm-hmm. Do you have any ideas? Yeah, there's there's two ways, right? One of which is, is is who's making the hires, right? So you look at university presidents that are making the hires of Power Five ADs. A lot of those people are white men, right? So they're going to be more comfortable hiring white men, right? And then athletic directors are com- therefore athletic directors. The gross majority are white men, and they're going to feel more comfortable hiring white men. Like so, that it's partly just continuing to educate and activate, right? Um, and it's trajectorying in the right direction. You know, the Patty Phillips, who is the um, CEO of Women Leaders in College Sport out in Kansas City. She's one of my very closest friends in the whole world. And she has done over the last 10 years a remarkable job of, of getting um, women and women of color um, in athletic director seats across the whole entire country um, in all levels. And um, just really helping people on their journeys continue to have opportunities. And that's really moved the needle. And then she's really brought a lot of men along with her to, to help move the needle. So, you know, it's going to take a team, you know, and uh, these athletes are well, well, well versed in how to do that. And so, um, it's, that's the first way. And then the second way is making sure that we prepare our student athletes, or at least the people that I have direct contact with, so that when they get their opportunity, they shine. Because we can't fail. There's not enough of us, you know. Um, and so that's partly why my coaching goes beyond just X's and O's. You know, I want my, my women to, to really be, be great in whatever area that they, they enter um, society. Um, and that's partly on me because they will give me so much of their time in their formative years. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, that kind of moves perfectly to my next question of what advice do you have for women who want to be a coach or women who want to work in sports? What would you tell them? I would say you're going to hear people say, are you sure? And I just, I, I think that's because it's, a not a, it's not a linear path, right? It's not like school teaching where you do this, 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 and then you become a principal or whatever. Like it's, it's not a linear path. And, um, but yet it's a career where you can make an impact every day and you can leave a legacy. Uh, and that for me is priceless, right? And so you can have a family. People are going to say it's hard because you, when you have a family, it's hard to do any job when you have a family. Let, let's be clear, right? Because you're any minute you're not with your family, you're feeling like you should be. And every minute you're working, you should, you know, you, every minute with your family, you should be working, right? So there's always going to be challenges. So advice I would give is just to find people. First of all, find people that that are going to help you along the way. Right, that are going to connect you to people that are going to be your eyes and ears um, as, as you have insecurities and, and, and growth to be made. Um, and then also, it, like anything, to be good at it, you got to put a lot of time into it. So, I mean, I probably watch a thousand basketball games a year um, because I want, it, I want the game to slow down for me when I'm actually coaching it. And it has because I watch so much of it. Um, I read a lot. You know, if you look at the most successful people in our country, um, at least in terms of you know whatever the kind of the grand definition of success is, is they're avid readers. I mean, I, 
you have to find time to make yourself better um, so that you are better. It's a competitive industry. Um, so I, I think those are twofold, you know, make sure you're, you're finding the people outside of yourself that can, that can give you opportunity and can help you grow. Um, but you're also working on uh, making sure that you are uh, your best self so that you can be your best self for other people, which will make you a better coach. Yeah, it was interesting uh, that you were talking about reading. I've That's been something this semester I got to underload, so that's something I've been, you know, adding in. What's one book recommendation that you've, you know, read recently that you're like, it's an absolute must read? Oh, gosh, a lot of them. Um, a book called The Score Takes Care of Itself is about uh, Bill Walsh, and he started up the San, San Francisco 49ers. talks about a complete culture rebuild. Um, obviously, athletics is kind of where my world is, um, so that that's super important. Um, you know, for teams, you can do everything from obviously the man watching, which is Anson Dorrance or, um, or toughness by Jay Billis, um, that kind of help you have take, take awayables that you can share with your team, um, as well. And then you throw in some nonfiction about any number of topics that I'm sorry, some fiction that make you put yourself in somebody else's world. Right. So if you don't understand the, um, how it was to grow up in the South, then read, you know, read a book on, that people, you know, even just that the, the concept is built in the South, right? Or where the crawdad sings or, you know, read about, if you don't understand, you know, the, a great book is called Small Great Things by Jody Picot. And it's, it's not true. It's a fiction book, but it really gets at the race relations in our country in a, in a, in a polarizing and uh, real way. Um, so I usually read something that, that gives me access to knowledge in, in another area, um, whether that's fiction or not, it, where, where it's, um, where it's set and where its characters are built um, will give you more access into understanding a different world than yours. Yeah, that's funny. I actually started or listening um, to an audiobook, The Hate You Give. It was like one of the best reads from last year and it's been really good so far. I'm like halfway through, so I am excited to finish the rest of it. But yeah, I, I love that advice about reading. I think that's something everyone non or athlete or non-athlete could take away from this podcast today yeah especially if you if you inversely your social media perusing so if you social media pursued for two hours split it in half and do an hour of reading you'll see how much yeah yeah i think that that'll that'll help (laughs) yeah and honestly just getting rid of social media in general helps so much (laughs) i wanted to ask just you know one more advice question specifically for student athletes um kind of twofold like what advice do you have for student athletes in general? I know you have said focusing on academics, but then the second one would be specifically related to COVID. Um, what advice would you give student athletes during this <laughs> very difficult, different um, time? I will say the COVID thing is a challenge, right? I think the, the it's how I approach it, and I think it's a big challenge. So how you approach challenges is understand your options. And with COVID, there are literally two options. One is don't play. Two is keep yourself safe so you can play. There's, there's no other option, right? So if that means that keeping yourself safe allows you not to be in the social environments that you want and now you're not happy, like then you should not play. That, that's the other option, but you can't have it all, um, especially when you're going through challenges. Just like to be great at your sport, you can't have it all. You have to make sacrifices. Um, so it's, it's not being a hostage to the situation, owning your power. You have a choice. You don't have to do this. So if you do hard things, you will continue to be willing to do hard things. And that's partly what sport teaches you. Just do hard things and do them over and over and over again. And then when you get to be a, parent, a working parent or you have a really stressful job, it, it, it just you're used to doing hard things. So you do it and success follows. Yeah, okay, for the last question, um, I just wanted to know where you see yourself, you know, in the next five, 10, 15 years and 
overall, like what's one goal, your biggest goal to accomplish during your coaching career? You know, my goal every year is to bring that group of people further than they'd ever get without me. So that goal, that goal will never change. And if we can continue to recruit the way we are, I think that will lead to a lot of national success athletically as well. Um, but that's all, those are all the details. For me, my absolute priority is that the team gets further with, with me than they would without me and that I bring them further along than even they would have imagined, um, no matter how hard that is. Um, but 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, the thing about coaching that's really awesome, another thing, of course I love it, but another thing is that you know when your time is up. Now some people hold on to it too long and then someone else tells you your time is up. But as soon as this job, I don't wake up every morning knowing that this is exactly, um, that I'm willing to give this day everything I have and I'm willing to give the people in it everything I have. The minute that I don't feel that way, then it's turn for somebody else to take over the program, right? Um, and so luckily I won't have to really think about, about whether that's in, in 15 or 20 or, I don't think about it, it'll, it'll just happen. Um, and then depending on when that is, what's next, you know, maybe, a, um, definitely involving myself in something around service, whether that's, I'm already retired, so I'm able to have more time or whether that's being able to use my voice and experience to serve other people's insecurities or fears, um, or opportunities. Um, but I think there's three chapters. This is chapter two. I don't know what's, I don't know what's next. We'll see. And I don't know when, but I'm open to it. Yeah. I love how you related it back to a book. I think that's so funny. Um, but I really am so honored to have you on my podcast and I really appreciate you taking that like a whole hour out of your time during the middle of your season. So, um, it really means a lot. So, um, just thank you again. And thank you everyone for tuning into this episode of Benched. This has been your host, Jules Makia with our lovely guest, Coach Banghart. Want to share your story, whether you prefer to share on a podcast, in a video, on a panel, or in a written blog, we cannot wait to hear from you. Just go to uncutchapelhill.com, that is uncutchapelhill.com, click get involved, and then share your story. Amplifying your voice has never been so easy.